Leaving the military can be overwhelming. You go from doing everything as a team to being all on your own. Decisions are suddenly all on you. You might be looking for housing, a job, and even your social cues may quickly reveal themselves to be, well, military. When you are suddenly um, transitioning back to civilian life, it can feel it can feel really isolating. And so my sessions are bringing these veteran men together and they're practicing self-expression. They're, they're practicing storytelling. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the theater is open. My first guest is Elizabeth Byland, a professor of improv at Virginia Commonwealth University. And for the military veterans in her class, Byland's Tuesday evening improv is life-affirming. Elizabeth, you've been leading improv classes for military veterans. What is improv and why might it be good for vets? Yeah, so when you are transitioning back to civilian life, you are, you know, you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. You're going from a place where you had your team, you had your comrades, you had your squad, and it's all for one and one for all. And then suddenly you're thrusted right back into society. You're looking for um, employment, you're looking for housing, you're looking for stability. And today, more than ever, uh, we are living in very unstable times. And yep. so the that uphill that uphill battle is is real and. Improv is a method that allows individuals to come together and practice some of those skills that many employers and, um, you know, uh, housing organizations would find really beneficial uh, for, you know, their employees and community clients and beyond. So essentially what improv is, is it's, it's what we're doing right now. It's listening and responding without a script. And so my sessions are bringing these veteran men together and they're practicing self-expression. They're they're practicing storytelling. They're they're even using some of their stories that, you know, for you and I, we might not necessarily find, you know, very humorous, but they are able to mm-hmm. tap into some of those moments that even even allows them to laugh and cut up and ultimately connect with others again. When you first started teaching this group of veterans, and most of these are people you've described as moving forward through homelessness. So they're experiencing housing insecurity, right? That's right. Yeah. When you first encountered them, was it so different from what you had imagined? I assume you had not been close to military veterans or especially people moving through homelessness. Yeah. When I first started working with these individuals, I'll be completely honest. I had to put myself in check. I had my own my own biases uh, that I, I wasn't even necessarily aware of. And then here I am and I'm leading these sessions and I have one individual that tells me, you know, he's got a PhD in engineering. And another individual tells me, you know, used to be a middle school, uh, high school, all-star wrestling coach. Like, you know, and and we just sort of attach these other preconceived notions that really, that I and we as a society have to really put in check because that's part of their uphill struggle, right? That's part of what they are constantly facing on any given single day. And so also I've been bringing in healthcare students in with me um, so that these healthcare students are also learning from 
these individuals that they even maybe have some of their own biases towards and understanding that this isn't just someone that is homeless when they come to see you in the hospital. This is somebody that has a story. Where'd you get that idea to bring in medical students to meet these people and mix with them? I hold a position at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and my position is a unique one in that I am a faculty that is with the School of the Arts Department of Theater, and then I also hold a joint position with uh, VCU Health. So I work with clinicians and uh, current and future healthcare workers. So that that was already a perfect setup, I thought, for us to bring them out into the community with me. Because look, let's face it, you know, these healthcare students and um, practitioners, you know, they spend all of their time in the textbooks, and then suddenly they're working with patients. So improv training is just as essential for them as some of their hands-on training that they're doing in the simulation center. You wrote on your webpage about your own improv experience in high school. You said, I grew up as an incredibly shy, super awkward (laughs) preteen who only knew the life of a competitive gymnast. I say wow to that. I had zero (laughs) friends in school. Uh-huh. And was bullied constantly. Uh-huh. Yeah. During my sophomore year in high school, I happened to take speech and drama in a class, and literally it changed my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, it saved my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what is there about improv or drama that has this powerful effect or can have it on people? It, it gives you a safe space with other humans to share your voice and play and feel like you can take some risks. Because see, in improv, every everything that you say, everything that you do, it's always met with acceptance. And not only that, but we build off of other ideas. So that means Okay, I can I can come together with these other people and I can I can be pretty free and open and they're they're not only going to accept me but they're going to celebrate me. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's that's invigorating. And so, take little old me who <laughs> I I mean, I I wasn't even going into the cafeteria. I I I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting outside the cafeteria on a blue wooden hard bench and I would sit there by myself every day until lunch was over because everybody had their their table, right? Everybody had their their squad of people that they sat with and I always felt like I just didn't have my people. I didn't, I felt like I just didn't belong and I was really quiet. And then I was finally able to sign up and take a speech and drama class in my high school. And then sure enough, I'm raising my hand in class. I'm going into the cafeteria. I mean, I had friends. I, 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 it, it was transformational. Yeah. You are the perfect person to be teaching this class because when you've gone through that and how many millions have, right? Right. When you've gone through that, you totally get where people are starting off. Mm -hmm. Give me a feeling for what it's like to be in the class. Give me a moment where you and these students are really having fun. Oh, gosh. I mean... Oh, I just, (laughs) I'm, I'm smiling and giggling. Um, I, especially when I think about when my, um, when my veterans come into the room, because see, for them, they can choose to not be there. You know, they don't, they don't have to come. And every single Tuesday night when they walk in, I mean, it is like, Oh, it just, it literally sets my heart on fire that we all (laughs) gather together. I always ask them the same question every single week, which is what's the best thing that's happened to you today? And we certainly do. We absolutely unpack and talk about some of the heavier things, but I always like to start with, let's talk about the one good thing that's happened today. And you know, for some, that's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to, uh, to answer. For some, it really is. It's I'm here today. I'm here right now. 
And then for others, they'll tell me, oh, I got my, I got my housing voucher, or I just secured my, my, my place that I'm going to be moving into next month. You know, um, it, it, for some, it's they picked up a phone call and talked to a family member that they hadn't talked to in a while. And like, oh, those moments, it's those moments that I live for. And they're giving and breathing life into the other participants that are there. What's making this possible? Because as you're talking, it seems like it would be nice if this kind of class were available to people everywhere, and especially to veterans everywhere and to Mm -hmm. homeless populations. Mm -hmm. But this is possible because somebody gave you a grant or somebody has made a grant possible, right? It is, yes. Um, However, I want to also point out that at this point, my grant has pretty much come to a conclusion. And I have told everybody, I've said, look, I love doing this so much. And as long as, you know, these local organizations are cool with it, I'm just going to keep showing up. (laughs) And so that's pretty much what's happened now. Now I'm working on a volunteer basis and I love it. But this all came to be because A, I've got a university that supports me. And B, because the American uh, medical colleges and the Endowment for Humanities came together and created a grant that brings the humanities together with healthcare. And they they saw my proposal and they thought, okay, sure, sure, Elizabeth, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and I did. And it's been awesome. And now I'm just not stopping. And that's really, that's my goal here is I want to, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing this even not only with our homeless um, population, but I want to keep offering this to other marginalized populations. I want to offer this in uh, juvenile detention centers. I want to go to correctional facilities for women and, and men. I, I like, this doesn't stop. Not for me. I'm, I am on a mission, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other because this is something that should be offered to literally anyone and everyone that wants it. Um, you shouldn't have to be in a university setting in order to, to experience this. I mean, you're, liter- it's, you're experiencing humanity. That's what improv is. Improv is teaching us the language of humanity, and that's... Sh- that should be something that everybody has access to. Elizabeth Bylan, thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. <laughs> Elizabeth Byland is head of improv performance in Virginia Commonwealth University's theater department. She's also an affiliate faculty at the VCU School of Medicine. For years, one Virginia professor helped incarcerated women write their stories and try to regain a sense of their humanity. Recently, he asked his colleague, Brad Stoller, to create a stage performance of those prison writings, and Brad agreed. Brad Stoller is an associate professor of theater arts at Piedmont Virginia Community College. He worked with hundreds of writings from over the years from incarcerated women to produce a live theater performance called Flying in Place. Brad, you recently created a performance called Flying in Place that you culled from poetry and prose written by men and women in jails not far from where you teach. Tell me me about that process. Well, the process was many-layered. It started with a conversation, actually, between the dean... Dean Lee Kennison and Benjamin Sloan and myself. And it was about taking these writings that Benjamin Sloan, who is just retired English professor at our college, um, had been collecting over about a dozen years from his work in the prisons. And the first thing they said was, (laughs) they approached me and said, can you turn this into a play? And I quickly said, no. This is not a cohesive thing for a play without a lot more context and work. And the this was like 150 entries from all kinds of people. 
Yes, all kind from different prisons, all kinds of people. Uh, some of the entries had been, uh, most of them had been turned into journals that Benjamin had put together. And some were things he had just collected <laughs> that were just on sheets of paper. Everything was sheets of paper. There was no digital <laughs> anything. So there was a lot of paper. Um, and some of them were handwritten. Uh, many of them actually were handwritten. Some were typed. I think many of them were not typed by the people themselves. They were typed by somebody else. What got you to yes? What got me to yes was realizing that when they approached me with their concepts, both of them, of the idea of a play, that that's all they knew. And my background, I'm a professional dancer, and I'd been doing social theater work for decades. And I have a broader sense of what a performance can be. But in this way, I have actually a lot of expertise. And if you're interested in me doing this, I would take it on. <laughs> I'm laughing now because take it on meant a lot of organization, a lot of bringing a lot of people in and a lot of culling through all this material and choosing things and choosing how we would do it. Were the people in prison also taking classes at Piedmont Virginia Community College? Yes. In fact, all of the writings were are from students who are in the prisons from through Piedmont. You found that toilet paper plays an interesting role in prison life. Can you tell me about that submission that you decided to include in your performance? Yeah, it's called I'm on a Roll. <laughs> and it's actually written from the perspective of the toilet paper itself rather than from the prisoners. Um, and... I knew I would want to use it as soon as I read it because I wanted to have a variety of light material in a way. And it's funny because even though it's light, it tells a story that is much deeper and darker about resources in general, about how the women, this is from the women's prison in Fluvanna, which is not far from our home here, it uh, becomes a commodity and become something that the women hoard and use. And it's very important. As we found out recently in the pandemic, <laughs> that toilet paper became something <laughs> yeah. uh, of a, a resource and important. In prison, things like that. What were they doing with the hoarded toilet paper? Everything from using it as pencil holders to... Uh, using it on their bodies to making sculptures with them to using it as trade, as material to trade for things. And how did um, you present I'm on a roll on the stage? Very abstractly. A lot, of, a lot of my own aesthetic is to let there be an abstraction so that people, that audience and performers can have associations rather than trying to be too literal about things. In a way, it was literal. I had over 50 rolls of toilet paper on the stage itself. We as performers, uh, mostly dancers, were trained to be sensitive to this. I asked them to find ways in which to pick up the toilet paper with different parts of their body and to exchange the toilet paper without their hands um, with each other. And that became quite an interesting investigation, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, but also not just going to humor, really letting it be sensitive. There was another piece that was written by an incarcerated woman where she talked about what it felt like to have all of these words come at her that deeply affected her life as part of the, as, as part of the court process. Yes. Yeah, that, she called the piece Words. And if you'd like, I can read the first part of it again. Words are both weapons and bandages for our wounds. With them, we are powerful. Without them, we are prey. Many of us at this moment in time are dejected and disarmed by the piles of paper printed against us. But I say it is wrong to let ourselves be strangled by the sentences written upon us. Do not let the prosecutor's closing arguments and the nonsense written about you in the newspapers be the final words written about your life. So that's the opening 
um, paragraph or part of the opening paragraph of a piece that we opened the program with. This was in many pieces where we found that the the court process, the sentencing process, the the way in which an individual is put into a system and becomes less of an individual, becomes less pertinent or feels less whole and they're regaining of it. This process, the working with the language is such a huge part of it. And, and Ben Sloan obviously was very talented in getting these prisoner writers to, to find within themselves and to re put together all their pieces so that they're whole again. And this woman specifically in this piece about words is about reclaiming their power in, in language and in the wholeness of who they are and not being reduced. There's another woman who talks about what it feels like to be so infantilized by the judge who's all-powerful and casting the sentence on her. Yes, this is, this is a quite powerful piece called Unveiled that we performed with chairs on stage in different regimental structures of horizontal, vertical, diagonal, um, and other ways in which we arranged chairs and stood for sentencing and expressed the words from the writer, the author, uh, about her feelings about being treated and being sentenced, in her opinion, very unfairly, and not being seen as, as a person. One of the lines that the judge says to her is, you're very dishonest, manipulative, and use people to commit criminal acts. And then she says, those sentiments have scarred me for eternity. I often think that there may be some beauty behind those nauseating opinions. Perhaps I should embrace my flaws with open arms. In all honesty, I believe I adore those elements I possess. I think the devastating factor is he exposed my true image. Hearing someone else unveil my secret capacities felt like a form of self-betrayal. I've been this tainted soul from the time I was out of my mother's womb. How could I allow an imbecile to draw back my invisible cloak? Is it the truth that rips and claws snagging at my esophagus, or the fact that someone learned my hidden treasure without me having the slightest suspicion. There was a striking and surprising essay by, I think, a man who had committed a murder and was in prison for life, possibly, but who was talking about his gratitude to guards who had given him a warning that he embraced. Yes, he often uses the words beaten and bloody and that he witnessed others and that he experienced himself being beaten and bloody by guards and being put in solitary and him being particularly hard-headed and not able to change his ways and that a guard bluntly told him one day, you keep this up and you're going to end up dead, accidentally, in quotes. And that he finally heard something through that, that this way in which he was revolting against everything that was happening was just going to end up with him dead. And then finally he says, the path to maturity that I took isn't one that I would recommend for most people. Fortunately, it worked for me at a time when I don't think anything else would have. There was some point at which you had one of the actors tell the audience a disclaimer about who the actors were versus who were the individuals who'd authored each of these pieces. Yes. Um, the, we had over 20 performers in the piece uh, uh, with uh, some, some of the pieces were read, by the way, were, and 
performers did physical theater and dance type of things to the read material. And sometimes we as performers uh, spoke the pieces. And so we had over, over 20 performers in this. And the ratio of people of color to not people of color, it's hard to say, was not what the ratio is in prison. So we wanted to speak to that. We wanted to admit this and find the, the way in which we're all culpable. Uh, and it means admitting this is something, this is a reality that is not being visually expressed through who we are as performers right now. Where do you want to take this next year? <laughs> well, the grant that we received pretty explicitly says we are taking it to the prisons, which we weren't able to do yet. And so this next year, we're going to be going into the prisons. The, the prisoners themselves will be performing some of the pieces for each other. Some of us uh, will take some of that material and again, perform out in the community in the free world. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that going into at least, hopefully at least three of the prisons that are on the grant and then having more people. Won't it be fascinating to see the difference between our interpretation um, artistically on stage in the free world and what this feels like, sounds like, looks like when you're actually having it performed by the individuals themselves? Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, I, Since I have done some work in prisons, I know how shocking it can be to any community members to come with me to wake up to the realities there and how shockingly beautiful and immediate something that happens in prison is there's an immediacy people are in there and wake up to there is there is now there is just now they don't think oh i'll wait for a better time <laughs> to express this or to discover this. It, it's, it's pretty immediate. That's so interesting. Brad Stoller, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Brad Stoller is an associate professor of theater arts at Piedmont Virginia Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Many industries shut down slowly at the dawning of the pandemic, but for theater, the curtains closed immediately and Greg Stull says the hundreds of thousands of people who lost their jobs have changed theater forever. Greg Stull is the chair of the Department of Theater and Dance at the University of Mary Washington. Greg, remind me of just how big the hit was to the theater world in the U.S. when the pandemic came along. The, the hit was extraordinary and unprecedented for us. You know, within days, all of the theaters all over the country shut down, beginning with Broadway. Broadway called the shots. Um, and then all of the hundreds of professional theaters all over the country, they too shut down. Were you shocked when you heard Broadway had shut down? I was I was completely shocked. I, I I couldn't imagine a world where that would happen. So so you know that was that was the the beginning of, of March of 2020, and I was I was there with with students, and I went to see uh, a two part play on Broadway, The Inheritance by Matthew Lopez. Oddly enough, it's a play that explores the effect of um, HIV and AIDS on a community of people in, in a very broad and gorgeous way. And then at the intermission, when an audience member came up to shake the hand of the playwright and greet the playwright, and the playwright said, Matthew Lopez said, I'm, um, no, we don't shake hands anymore. We don't do that anymore. And I was aware then, probably for the very first time, that the world was changing 
And how much longer was it once you returned to Fredericksburg and the University of Mary Washington that everything turned upside down there? Well, I was called to a meeting of department chairs on the Monday. We returned on Monday, and it was shared with us um, what was happening and what was likely to happen that the university would close for in-person business and students would be sent home probably in two days. And within two days, we transitioned to online learning like every other school, every other college and university. We figured it out. When did you start to feel depressed about it? You know, probably um, my key faculty and staff, we stayed on campus for probably a week after everybody left. I wanted to be on-site on campus because we had faculty who were also transitioning to teaching who needed things from the campus and we needed to help support them. And so we stayed stayed along uh, for a bit. I mean, our faculty had to transition to teaching things like scene painting and scenic construction, you know, from their living rooms via Zoom. And so, you know, we were there to support them. And about a week after everyone left campus, one one of my staff members just said to me, I think it's time that we stop coming to campus. And he was absolutely right. And when when I left the campus, I began um, to, to to be sad about it. Nationally, once we shut down. How big was the hit to individual actors and wig makers and theater people of all stripes? Right. When people come to the theater, they look at the people who are on the stage. And you have to realize that for most professional theaters, there are 10 or 12 or 15 more people that make that production happen. Um, everybody from people who sell the tickets, who, uh, who who take you to your seats, to those people who make wigs and who make shoes and uh, who paint scenery. And all of those people became immediately unemployed. And is that many people? That's nationally probably hundreds of thousands of people. The personal impact on theater makers was... Um, severe and extreme because right away they you know all of these people became unemployed um you know you were, weren't essential you you have to transition to other work um some of these folks are they're artists they 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 don't have huge cushions of cash to uh, survive on so they had to transition to other careers i i know that many theater makers um, transition to other careers during the pandemic and are probably not going to come back to the theater because um, a lot of these people work gig to gig to gig. You you get used to that, but when you don't have to do that, there, there's something satisfying perhaps to some of these folks. So, so it, 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 it is a, a huge impact and the impact is still going. We have not recovered from the pandemic. We are still struggling with the pandemic. For, for instance, if you look at Broadway, everybody knows Broadway. You know, this, even though theater happens in every medium to large town in America, but we look to Broadway because, you know, that, that, that's the visible part of our industry. Um, there are 41 Broadway houses right now. There are 29 of them that have shows in them. These productions, um, all of the theaters, all the professional theaters who who are involved with the unions, the actors' unions requires regular testing, sometimes daily testing, in order to keep the actors safe. Um, We did have vaccination checks and masks for audience members in New York no longer, we first, we dropped the vaccination checks and now um, there's no, no masking for audiences. You're reminding me there've been some star performers who've been felled by COVID along the way, even more recently. That's absolutely true. You know, ma- major productions like The Music Man, um, uh, you know, uh, Sutton Foster and uh, Hugh Jackman, you know, have, 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 have both, you know, <laughs> met their match with, with, with COVID. But it's a great boon for the understudies, right? It, it is, you know, and quite frankly, one of, one of the great things is that I believe our industry now is, is appreciating the work of understudies and swings in a way that they never did before. What's a swing? A, a swing is, a, is a, another kind of an understudy. A swing often um, learns one set of tracks. So so you know probably a half a dozen or more roles. So it's 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 a it's a very, very challenging job. Though you know when you look at a production, um, a theater production, if you're lucky enough to have understudies, 
The reality is if people test positive, it's a fragile environment and you can get to the point where you don't have enough understudies to go on. The um, only theater uh, in Maryland, for instance, was about to open its production of The Music Man early this summer. And they had to delay the opening by two weeks because COVID coursed through the company and they did not have enough understudies. The understudies weren't ready because they were at the beginning of the run. Uh, and so they had to had to wait till people recovered um, in order to do that. And we, there are stories all the time of, of professional productions where the majority of the cast or the entire cast are, are understudies or swings you know, that, that the, the, the principal players are not there. Um, uh, and in the Broadway productions, they, they are pulling people from previous tours, people who have gone off the show just to keep the, the productions alive. Um, so so it's, 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 it's a very fragile environment. What are people saying going forward? How has theater permanently changed? Well, I think that there is... Um, there is a different approach to work. I think that in um, we we have always had in the professional theater this sense that the show must go on. Uh, now people have symptoms that two years ago they would have never missed work for. To have sniffles or a sore throat, they would have gone to work. They would have pushed through. The show must go on. Um, and now that's not the world we live in. And so actors are having to be reminded and supported that they don't have they they should not come to work if they're symptomatic in any way. And so I think that we are developing a sort of healthier, better approach to work as a result of the pandemic. But have we lost permanent audience? Did we have devotees of theater who will never come back? You know, it's hard it's hard to say. You know, it's it's really hard to say. My my experience is is that our audiences are hungry to get back to the theater. They they have missed it. Um they um they want that experience. Um you know, what, one of the interesting things for me is that as as a theater maker, I recognized when I went into um rehearsal last fall that I had been out of the rehearsal hall for the longest span of time in my entire career. And I missed that sense of being in the room with actors. I missed the sense of having that conversation with actors, of building something that we share with the audience. And for me, and for the actors that gathered in, in that production, um, we had a greater appreciation for what we do. We didn't take it for granted in the way that maybe we had before. Greg Stull, thank you for talking with me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Greg Stull is chair of the Department of Theater and Dance at the University of Mary Washington. All the media we could desire is right in the palm of our hands. But is it enough? Is it even really good? David Riley is an assistant curator of performance at Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Contemporary Art. Recently, he launched Test Pattern. It's a hybrid performance series that reproduces the public programming TV set, improvisational, unduplicated, and now streaming. Associate producer Lauren Francis spoke with David Riley about the series. So I'm thinking about early June, sitting in the auditorium, looking down, and I see Obliv with the percussion on the SP-404, just mad nice on the background vocals. You have Elijah Hall on the cello. You have More Mother with, like, all this conjuring, I feel like, a lot of poetry, a lot of just speaking, conjuring. And then I'm sitting there, I'm already enmeshed in this. You have like the strobe lights, like Vanna's going crazy on the lights up there. Then you have the video playing. It's kind of like altered a bit, but the video from Richmond's 2020 protests. And then I look across and I see Ra like all glowing, this like neon get up, crawling, like holding on to everything, like throwing themselves, but crawling and just moving through, which I felt was like the the grounding to that levitation. What put that in your mind, like, to create test pattern in the spring of 2022? 
I mean, I think when you're planning these sorts of performances that are collaborative, there's only so much money you can do. So I think about my job a lot as a matchmaker. Mm -hmm. So I think who's an amazing artist we can bring that I know has an audience here or I know would have an impact here, who here is doing similar work um, that we could match them with, who is an academic at VCU that can talk about their work, who is someone they want to collaborate with or have requested to collaborate with. Mm -hmm. So it's bringing those things all together. And I think having a a level of trust in the process, you know, it's a process. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't know what the final product would be necessarily, especially with More Mother, because it was improvised mostly. But I knew that was her area of expertise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is what she does. Mm-hmm. So she requested to work with Obliv and these performers. We brought them all together. Caitlin Cherry was the, the cherry on top, shall we say. <laughs> and right. I think you just have to trust it. And it, it was meant to be a test. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a test. Will I see you tomorrow on that strange cosmic road? Will I see you tomorrow on the other side of the sun? There's no day. There's no day. So you were telling me that this was kind of like an homage to public access TV. Tell me more about that. Sure. Well, I think nostalgically back on the beginning days of television, which is, you know, we weren't that old. that Let's be before our time, really. But mm-hmm. um, I did a lot of research into the early days of TV mm-hmm. and uh, Public Broadcasting Act and one the, all the uh, legislation that led to both public TV mm-hmm. on the one hand oh, and wow. then public access, which was cable. Okay. And while we may not have been around when that happened, I think we've all been exposed to it. Right. And our culture has been so colored by public access. You know, we see skits about it. We see mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. about movies about it. So we know what it is and we know the level of cra- craziness, you could say, right. experimentation, like a true public presentation of what's in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And um, I think at one point I had listed the, the names of some of these, you know, it was like Tyrants in Therapy, Gay USA, yeah, uh, Pancake Mountain, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I was, a, I was really attracted to that sort of like eccentric, controversial craziness. Yeah. And the DIY-ness of it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who... Um, Maybe didn't have the best grip on production. Yeah. But I I did the same thing when I was a student in New York. I went to BCAT. Okay. Which was the Brooklyn version of um, public access TV show. And you would just sign up. You would be in a studio with people you didn't know. Right. You'd just be on a camera learning how to operate mm-hmm. it along, you know, could be like a mom next to you or, you know, just like all walks of life, Sounds all like ages. Sounds improv, essentially. Yeah. And it was, I just love that sort of um atmosphere Mm -hmm. and so i was trying to recreate it in some ways right um the difference being maybe that obviously the artists were more curated into it right right um but then allowing them the freedom to put together what they wanted to do and talk about their work how they wanted to right and then like youtube became the tv yeah um obviously public access tv is not what it used to be it was totally um you know overrun by the internet mm-hmm. and internet culture, YouTube, all the social media that we use. And while I think it's great that we have access to these tools, there's also something sad about it to me. Like right. the, the level of corporate ownership of everything that we do, you know, Instagram, Facebook, the same company, YouTube owned by Google, I believe. Yeah, I think um, so, yeah. So... It's a little bit like screaming into a void, maybe like mm-hmm. putting a show about public access TV sh- or inspired by that onto YouTube, right? 
but I think they can exist in other forms as well. It doesn't just have to be that platform. Mm-hmm. It's like we, the IC has its own archive. Okay. So uh, since we're not a collecting institution, what we have is a collection of publications, videos, photos that document everything that we've ever done. So we do have that. Mm. Um, but it was thinking through some of these issues of media ownership too and media literacy, right. I think. It's a hmm. huge deal, obviously. Chioki was talking about that. Tell me more when you say media literacy. Um, understanding how media is produced, mm-hmm. how why we're hearing certain stories mm-hmm. and not others. Right. For, number one. <laughs> how things are censored. You know, media is heavily censored in this country. I think we think of it as a sort of something happens in authoritarian regimes, but I think everything we see and hear whether it's on TV or on the internet, definitely on social media, is that is censored. Mm-hmm. There are people, and I know some of these people, who whose job it is is literally to watch the content on, say, Facebook and decide whether it's suitable. And so you can imagine the crazy, crazy things that they see. And <laughs> from the anecdotes I've heard, it's not um, a job that's good for your mental health. Mm. Just seeing people. Um, so yeah, and we've seen this with the over the past five years how it affected elections, right. how it affected the way we speak to each other, uh, the comments section. Do you read it? <laughs> yeah. Do you jump in? Right. Who I, who do I become when I am in the comments section? Right. Right. What? Why do I feel? What do I start fighting need? for that I like didn't like, care about before I logged on? You know, and like this sort of like oh, everyone's an idiot. Except me. Right, except me. (laughs) Always except me. Yeah. What I really liked about Test Pattern is that it made that production process more legible. And I think you've kind of already answered this, but for the listeners at home. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) (laughs) What is the significance of this DIY media at a time when, like, I can just go get a camera and really make a movie today? You can. You can do that on your iPhone. I mean, that's where we are here in the CMC. You can record your own Mm -hmm. podcast. Yeah, I think a lot of it, like you said, was about showing the process and how it's made and allowing the audience to participate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, in the first test pattern that we did in March, the auditorium became a dance floor. So not only were there was a DJ, Madison Moore, DeForest Brown Jr., a musician and theorist, both of them performing, um, referencing Detroit techno and the full, and the auditorium becoming a space for dance Um so that was part of it. And that first performance was really referencing public TV as well. Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, Detroit TV mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So WGPR, which I think stood for Where God's Presence Radiates. Wow. <laughs> everywhere. Wow. Um, <laughs> and that channel was the first black-owned public TV channel in the country, mm. I believe. And they hosted a number of shows. The ones that I was drawn to were ones called like The Scene, The New Dance Show. So they're really uh, sort of like Soul Train type right. formats where there's a host that, yeah. and they'd enter, they, you know, they'd introduce, um, you know, a, a new song that they were going to debut that and then people were dancing to it. So you were, it's really where techno was introduced. Mm. Dancers, are you ready to throw down? Yes, we are ready to throw down. We've got the godfather of soul. He's going to throw down on the show today. That's right, we're going to chat with James Brown, Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please, Please himself. That's what's happening. Don't go away. For those who are listening, like, man, I can't believe I missed that. Will there be more test pattern shows? There will be, yeah. So we are deep in planning for the fall season. So we have three more artists coming. Um, the first of those is Jamil Olawale Kosoko, who will be performing on Friday, August 26th. Um, we have a choreographer, composer, Kinlaw um, from New York who will be performing Friday, October 21st. And we have an L.A.-based artist, singer, visual artist, multidisciplinary, uh, Dorian Wood, 
It will be Friday, December 9th. Beautiful. Um, I think the first season we were really thinking about maybe nightlife spaces Mm -hmm. and how those affect the arts. So we were thinking Mm -hmm. about how did techno and the history of techno affect the arts or kink with Shanae, kink performance, power, uh, and more mother, obviously, spoken word, music, poetry, politics, Mm -hmm. um, talking about time travel, ancestors, and bringing that really into the room and... It's a really heavy way, but really beautiful way. Uh, I think the fall artists are more focused on the body and how bodies interact in space. Well, thank you, David, for the show and for the conversation. Yeah, thanks. This has been really fun. was with good reason associate producer Lauren Francis speaking with David Riley about Test Pattern, David's an assistant curator of performance at Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Contemporary Art. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his disabled brother Robert. Support for With Good Reason is also provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. We had booking assistance from Jenny Taylor. Some clips in this episode come from Test Pattern and from WGPR-TV's Dance Show The Scene. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.